0: I just like to introduce and welcome you all here and introduce William, uh, who I've known on and off for ages, has always, since I think I was a PhD, he's always terrified me, as I'm sure all of you will recognise, with his kind of amazingly detailed recall of an incredible range of things, but uh, true scholar and and, and really nice to, to, to come and listen to this. I'm the wrong person entirely to to try this, because I don't get on with equids in any <laughs> form, but I'm, I'm still looking forward to, to, to hearing a lot about this. So I'm going to just hand yeah, straight over to you, Don't
1: worry, I don't get on with equids either. After yeah. I fell off a horse and was dragged along on in my face as a child, <laughs> I never got on one again. So um, One can have an academic interest in these things without actually riding them. So the, the basic thing I'm trying to explore is whether or not the scarcity of horses. Uh, in Sub-Saharan Africa is a cause of underdevelopment. Okay, that's uh, a question I'm posing, I don't really know the answer. Uh, This is a map of global horse distribution around about um, 1910, and you can see that Sub-Saharan Africa is very much of a kind of horse desert. Even if you move to mules and donkeys, um, it's a bit better, but again, much smaller concentrations than elsewhere. This is mainly donkeys in the case of uh, Africa, for complicated reasons I put mules and donkeys uh, together. So the reasons are quite simple, disease, uh, so often in Africa, um, uh, sub-Saharan Africa is unique uh, in having uh, tsetse-born trypanosomes which affect all sorts of domestic livestock including equids and of course including uh, human beings as well and the form of sleeping sickness. So this is a rough distribution. Note that tsetse belts move extremely mobile. Right? Note also, and this is cattle rather than equids, but note that you get quite a lot of cattle, particularly in West Africa, within the tsetse belts. So uh, tsetse is not a kind of absolute uh, excluder of uh, livestock. Um, often forgotten are the so-called other trypanosomes, the trypanosomia, vansi, or sura uh, from the uh, Indian word. Uh, where there's been a a, um, a transformation of the parasite, so it can be transferred simply by any biting fly or any blood uh, contact. It uh, reproduces clonally, and this form of trypanosome uh, only kills well, kills mainly horses, donkeys, and mules, uh, and also camels, and just dogs and tame elephants, etc. But it doesn't affect bovids and doesn't almost never. At least it's chronic in bovids; it doesn't kill them and almost never affects humans. And this is one of the reasons why this form of trypanosomiasis has been less studied, I think, than the Tetsi world. But It originates in Africa, north of the Tetsi belt, and then spreads throughout the world, throughout the tropical, subtropical uh, world. This lower map here gives you the, this is the overlap between tabernid flies and, and Glossina flies for Tetsi. And you can see that this is just Tabanid. you can see that the Tabanid flies spread over a much wider area than the Tetsi, which is uh, limited to uh, Africa. This is a horse suffering from sorrow, you can see the emaciation, which is a, a typical uh, effect of uh, trypanosomes. It's a bit like malaria in a human being, it has the same kind of uh, effects. Treatments then um, emerged in the interwar years, but based really on, on metals, but these are f- expensive and only partially defective and resistant as the grains. There's been very little development of new drugs to treat trypanosomes. Here's the mast uh, in the blood, so these are all kind of um, single cell uh, parasites. Now, Africa doesn't have just uh, one curse or two curses, it really ha- it has a third one in the form of African horse sickness. African horse sickness, uh, often known by its Afrikaans name, Berzesicta, uh, is also um, enzootic only in Africa. So, it's another thing which is peculiar to Africa, although it does spread occasionally, episodically. Uh, to the Middle East, Southern Europe, and in fact, horse breeders here in Britain are terrified that African horse sickness will uh, enter and destroy mm-hmm. their valuable thoroughbreds, so the internet is full of stuff about how to stop your thoroughbred racehorse in England <coughs> catching African horse sickness, with very little about what it actually does um, in Africa, which has got a classic um, lack of balance. So this is a, a virus spread by midges. Um, horses that recover are called salties. And usually don't catch it again, and therefore have a very high uh, sale value. So there's a treatment for this from the early 20th century, particularly effective from the 1930s. This is the only map I've ever been able to find. This the um, diffusion of African horse sickness in Africa. This is from a, a book by a, a German Nazi, part of a series of books for the conquest of Africa. The Germans are getting ready to conquer Africa, um, and so with methodical Teutonic. They had a whole series of books, one of which was about uh, animals. But as you can see what he's done basically is he's taken uh, territories within which there's been reported African horse sickness, and he's missed some out, so it's not actually, uh, West Africa actually has a lot more than that shown on this map. This is the uh, midge which spreads it, this is very similar to blue tongue disease in sheep, it's the same kind of um, midge-born virus, and he has a horse suffering from HIV. In Ethiopia you can see the foaming nostrils, which is uh, one of the typical signs uh, of the disease. Now climate is more generally a barrier in Africa. Humid heat not only encourages disease, but also lowers fertility of equids. Uh, tropical pastures make very poor hay, uh, and dense forests, um, equatorial forests in particular, are very inimical to the use of equids. So the result really of this is that equids have been distributed in a kind climate big crescent um, around the forests of Africa, but including the highlands, because it's the lowland forests on the whole which tend to uh, exclude them. Now on top of that we have wild equids, uh, zebras and quahas, which, although quahas are now uh, extinct, um, and there have been attempts to both domesticate, not, well, tame and or domesticate these, uh, and to hybridize them with uh, horses and donkeys. And this I think most unfortunately has been relegated to the field of um, scientific curiosities because actually I think quite considerable progress had actually been achieved uh, with this and it was all dropped once the internal combustion engine uh, hit Africa. So this is the rough distribution of plains zebra. So this is a southern and eastern African phenomenon. And here we have the down here, extinct, and then the other varieties of zebra. This is a zebra which has been tamed and trained uh, to jump in uh, Tanganyika. So you can see that uh, people didn't make a certain amount of uh, progress with these things. You have to be a little bit careful with these pictures because sometimes we have horses painted as zebras. <laughs> uh, however, I think that this is zebra. Uh, and this is uh, hybridization experiments carried on by uh, University of Edinburgh. Um, which they make quite a lot of money out of this, actually, because he used to go around uh, Britain exhibiting these uh, hybrids. This is a a hybrid from a a zebra stallion with a mare. (coughs) I I keep meaning to go up to Edinburgh to look at these papers which are deposited in Edinburgh University Library. Now, wild asses are another um, kind of equid which is not looked at much, and yet here it's particularly odd because wild asses, wild donkeys, uh, have uh, fertile offspring with domestic ones, and so they are interfertile, which is actually odd, because usually, domesticated species don't breed freely uh, with the wild ones, Uh, but they tend to be researched simply as a problem for uh, species diversity, rather than a problem for equity management. This is the old, uh, or at least assumed, old dispersion of wild donkeys, with the modern dispersion very much restricted uh, to that area here. There's considerable debate about this. Some people say there never was a wild North African other people swear there was. Here we have the Nubian wild ass uh, with the typical shoulder stripe, the the cross of Christ as it's sometimes called, because there's a stripe which goes down the back as well, and of course Christ entered Jerusalem on a donkey, although not one of these, almost certainly he entered on a big white riding donkey, but that's another matter. And here we have the uh, other parent, the Somali wild ass, and you can see here the stripes are uh, down the legs, and here we have an Ethiopian village donkey which has residual Leg stripes and also the shoulder stripes. So the, the two wild asses have come together in the creation of the uh, domestic donkey. Spread of donkey is then domesticated. This is the only major animal domesticated in sub Saharan Africa. Um, and it uh, drifts west across the Sahel Sudan ben, uh, belt. Exactly when, um, I've not been able to find out. Archaeologists don't seem to be terribly concerned with this. Um, drift also south uh, into East Africa with uh, pastoralist groups. Uh, However, in other parts of Africa, it's European colonists who bring them, uh, particularly to the offshore islands and to Southern Africa. So there's two types of dispersion. You can see here the sort of uh, yellow and orange belt is roughly the dry, and these are the highland belts. So these are the areas which are more or less suited (coughs) uh, to uh, donkeys if they can survive. The, uh, diseases. Now there's a great acknowledgement of the importance of their use uh, in uh, today's Africa, especially by a number of NGOs. And there's a shift in the way in which NGOs are seeing the use of donkeys away from pack, from carrying things, and towards draft, towards pulling things. But the history of the animals is extremely badly uh, treated. This is one of these. Uh, uh, organizations, uh, and interestingly this is the second logo, the first which has the donkey prominently displayed, the first logo of the organization, uh, there was much more emphasis on oxen, so it's been a shift I think in the thinking uh, of this particular organization. And this is a cartoon from the, I think the Zambian press, um, with uh, a fairly recent spread in some countries, so uh, a large scale uh, quarreling of donkeys in Zimbabwe moved up into Zambia, Although, as Jack says, there's already been donkeys in Zambia earlier than this, but um, it's over the last 20 years or so that there's been a really increase in Zambia's uh, donkey population. Now, horses are domesticated a bit later and in a different place, much further than Africa, in the western Eurasian steppe. They cross the Sahara, perhaps, although I'm very suspicious of the theories that they cross the Sahara. I think they actually uh, filter across the Red Sea into the Ethiopian highlands and then Filter westwards across the Sahel Sudan uh, belt. There's a real problem in historiography, which is always banging on about trans-Saharan caravans. And we know almost nothing about east-west communication, because it's so romantic to go through the sands of camels. But actually, it's much more sensible to go along the non-sandy bits uh, without camels. Again, uh, Europeans bring horses uh, to um, uh, with donkeys to offshore islands and to southern Africa. This is a Lesotho banknote. You can see the, the donkey with the horse behind. The Basuto pony, of course, is much more famous than the Basuto donkey, but uh, both are, in fact, part of the menagerie which is built by, by Europeans. Now, in terms of horses in the economic history of um, Africa, they've been really almost entirely neglected because historians have focused on the military role uh, of horses. Uh, to some extent, also, it's the related political and social history, but essentially, it's military. And to some extent, this is justified because their role has been less than that of donkeys. So in sub-Saharan Africa, we do have a kind of donkey domination. This is Robin Law's famous book um, on the horse in West African history, which is really almost entirely about military things. And this is Sandra Swart's book on uh, South Africa, Uh, where there's a bit more economic here, but it's still largely a military focus. And finally, then, we have the uh, sterile crossbreeds of uh, horses and donkeys, mules and hinnies. Um, Mules and hinnies are are different in terms of the crossing of their parents, but they're all called mules, so I'll just leave it at that. Uh, Why is it worth having a sterile animal? Uh, The reason is that it has hybrid vigour, like any crossing, biological crossing, the um, offspring of the horse and the donkey is stronger, more frugal, more resistant to disease, etc., etc., than its parents, sometimes actually bigger than both of its parents too, uh, particularly if you castrate male mules, because they are sexed but sterile. Yeah. Now, uh, Robin Law argues influentially that mules in West Africa were just mistakes, they were just something that happened when you a, a donkey, a stallion next to a, to a mare. I simply don't believe that. I think he's quite wrong about that. But we, we don't know much about deliberate breeding of mules uh, in Africa, though we do know that, again, Europeans introduced this in the offshore islands and in southern Africa. Here we have uh, uh, mules and donkeys in Mozambique. This is a, a mission photograph from the Protestant missions in southern Mozambique, of about 1900. This is a modern forestry mule. Forestry is one of the uh, areas of mules are still very heavily used around the world because they're good at taking out single uh, trunks instead of, if you want to avoid clear felling. And this is the large Catalan jacks, um, which are used for breeding big, strong mules. Uh, there are a lot of kinds of donkeys um, which are used almost exclusively for mule breeding and not for other purposes. Catalan donkeys, not so much in that category, but the Protu donkey, for instance, is used only for breeding mules. Okay, now I want to shift uh, looking at each of these regions slightly differently. The offshore islands, then, don't have the disease environments, those which are far enough offshore, anyway, uh, and so can develop a really fully-fledged uh, equid system. Although, and I don't understand why it's is the case, in Madagascar, which is free of disease, it doesn't develop, and I don't really know why. So we're talking mainly about the Cape Verde Islands, to some extent these islands here, the Islands, uh, these islands here, and particularly Réunion and um, Mauritius, the Mascarene Islands uh, off Madagascar. So this is a a mule diligence uh, in Mauritius in 1896. Mauritius had one of the highest sort of mule, uh, probably the highest mule density per area and had a population in Africa. Here we have a mule in, in Madagascar, so they do they do exist, but they don't spread very much. The French were quite keen to spread them, but it doesn't actually happen. Um, it's also possible in offshore Islands then to develop plantation agriculture with intensive use of uh, equids, particularly after the abolition of slavery. I think people often forget that one of the uh, rhetorics of the abolitionist movement was to replace human beings with animals as part of the abolition process. And so there was a great deal of emphasis on uh, bringing in animals rather than slaves uh, this is seen most obviously in Réunion and Mauritius uh, which really do employ very large numbers of mules in the 19th century but you also get it in São Tomé the Portuguese island which is the largest cocoa producer in the world by about 1900 but not on neighbouring islands where you have tetz-i-fly. So Santo Tomé is here, it's free of fly, but Príncipe and Bioco or Fernando um, Pó are both uh, areas which are affected by fly. Um, Here we have um, um, an equid, I'm not sure if it's horses or mules drawn, um, sugar mill which is said to be in Réunion. I think actually this picture comes from the French West Indies. Mm -hmm. But having said that, there is no doubt about that in Réunion they did have uh, sugar mills which were powered by horses and mules. This is a modern example in the Cape Verde Islands where they're still crushing sugar with mules. Uh, As you can see, a very simple kind of trapiche organisation. For this. And also that's not made, used to make sugar, it's used to make rum, at what it did. Um, not much use of equids in these offshore islands. they're too small. although Madagascar again is the exception, it's often said in the French army that mules conquered Madagascar. And this is a commemorative <coughs> plate of the French campaign at the end of the 19th century in which a mule is dragging what's called le lefebvre, le which actually worked rather badly on the steep uh, mountain uh, trails going up to the plateau. This is Gallieni, the leader of the French expedition entering Antananarivo in Madagascar in triumph on his horse. Interestingly, on a horse, not on a mural. Sorts of important differences in um, status. Uh, sport is perhaps also where uh, equis has become most important. Mauritius is actually mad on horse racing, um, and. Horses continue to be used, of course, for racing long after this used to be used for other purposes. So this is this could be anywhere in the world really, but this happens to be the maiden cup in Mauritius. And increasingly, the horses are uh, imported thoroughbreds uh, and not local horses. So that racing has kind of moved away from the uh, local equid uh, stock. There's lots of sort of informal racing, of course, which uses local equids as well. Um, the other thing is because these areas are relatively well suited for equids, they also develop an export trade. Um, Cape Verde Islands are particularly interesting here because they export not only to West Africa but to the Caribbean. Um, This starts rather by chance, really. The English traders are coming to Boavista and to Saal to to get salt. Um, And the salt is brought down to the waiting English ships on donkey backs. And after a bit they simply take donkeys as well. And so you get. uh, quite a lot of these Cape Verde monkeys in the Caribbean. And then increasingly, by the 18th century, it's mules, and to some extent horses, but mainly mules uh, by the 18th century. Um, and we've also got uh, a movement from Cape Verde to the San uh, plantations. But the Cape Verde islands are affected very badly by drought, um, and this is probably increasing in the late 18th, 19th century, which limits output. Unfortunately, there are no statistics of, that, of exports because uh, this was technically an illegal trade. Uh, they not meant to export to the colonies of another country. In fact, of course, the Portuguese authorities simply turned a blind eye, but the trouble is in turning a blind eye, they didn't keep a record either. So uh, it's very hard to know how many actually were uh, exported. But to this typical triangular trade that we all know about uh, in the Atlantic, you actually ought to add uh, animals, because animals are very important uh, on uh, sugar plantations and all other kinds of plantations too. And the relation between slaves and animals is one of these uh, areas of research which has been pitifully neglected. When you think about how much work there is on slavery in the Caribbean uh, and in other parts of the Americas, there's almost nothing on relations between slaves and horses, and, and mules and donkeys and oxen and everything else. There's some evidence to show that slaves treated the animals extremely harshly. Uh, there's other evidence uh, to show that they, they actually formed bonds, and it's hard to know uh, the balance uh, of this. Um, In terms of imports, um, by the 19th century what we're getting is a reversal then, the plantations um, taking off, it's impossible to have enough equids uh, and so you get massive imports, particularly in Mauritius. Uh, They start by importing from the Indian Ocean, from uh, Persia, from Ethiopia, but um, they're not able to meet the huge demand from the mass green, so uh, ultimately it's South America which becomes. The main supplier. So it's mules from Montevideo and then increasingly mules from Buenos Aires uh, in the Argentine, uh, which supply. Also horses from Indonesia, surprisingly, from Eastern Indonesia uh, and from Australia. Um, this um, Mauritius becomes a real equid mart uh, in the uh, 19th century. So this is a trade and came particularly from here, from these uh, mule lands of South America, but also from uh, horses from. Australia and Eastern Indonesia. Here's a donkey cart in Merhurst. Um Donkeys were most important in the 18th century. By the 19th century, there's a very clear movement to mules. Uh, if we move to the highlands um, of the Horn of Africa, um, again, relatively free of disease, although not as free as the faraway offshore islands. Uh, African horse sickness, as we saw in the early photo, can be a problem. But on the whole, Ethiopian highlands, including the neighbouring highlands of Eritrea, uh, have um, some of the greatest densities, have always had, and still have today, some of the greatest densities of equids in sub Saharan Africa. And in terms of warfare, which is again what's mainly been written about, we have this very curious system where men would ride on mules to the battlefield and then nip onto a horse and actually fight on the horse. And the reason for this is not because it's often said that mules are slow animals, but mules are just much more intelligent than horses. And mules will not put their life in danger for their rider in the way that a horse will. A horse will kill itself for its rider. Or if you, in fact, if you take a horse and make it plough and just go on and on and on, it'll simply die ploughing uh, if it's got that relationship with its master. So that strange kind of fidelity to its master or mistress uh, which occurs. So here we have a, a mixed group. Um, best way to look at mules or horses is the size of the ears, usually. Um, although here it's not terribly easy I think this is from Bruce's and stuff this is an Ethiopian drawing the Battle of Adwa what's interesting here is that the Ethiopians portray this as a battle in which they had the equids and the Italians didn't that's not strictly true but it's all, it is certainly true the Italians didn't have enough horses and this is one of the things that led them to disaster so when they tried again in 1935 they made sure they brought lots of horses uh, mounted by Eritreans and uh, Libyans um, this is uh, pack mule, uh, mule pack artillery, which is extremely important in these kinds of campaign. I'm not actually sure which army this is. I think it may be um, British troops. I'm not entirely sure. These, I think, are definitely British uh, ammunition mules in the Battle of Keren in World War Two. And these are Oromo horsemen uh, today. Uh, the Oromo, even more than the Highland um, Amharic-speaking uh, peoples, uh, have a, a real love of horses and a real sense of horsemanship. So, in the highlands, mules, particularly to some extent, donkeys really dominate transport. And camels and donkeys are, on the whole, used to bring up goods from the uh, lowlands rather than being used for transport across the, the highlands. Here we have uh, somebody riding a mule in Ethiopia in the 1940s. This is um, packed donkeys uh, with wood, a very scarce commodity, of course, in Ethiopia. And then highland agriculture does occasionally use equids, although. Highland agriculture in the Horn is peculiar by its intensive use of the plough. Most of sub-Saharan a- agriculture is hoe agriculture. Uh, but here we have the plough used with oxen, generally speaking, but sometimes with equids. Equids are also useful for threshing uh, and particularly for transport to and from the fields, as so a kind of classic. Uh, the donkey is not as overburdened as it looks because it's a very light uh, load, or it's very bulky load. The trade in equids from the highlands then is, as I said earlier, partly um, an export trade in the Indian Ocean. Uh, Quite a lot of the mules that the French used to conquer Madagascar were sold to them by the Emperor of Ethiopia, um, because it was cheaper that way than to get them from France or Algeria. But mainly, this tends to be an overland trade to East Africa and to the Sudan. And in return, the Ethiopians uh, imported, or perhaps still do import, a lot of the big white Senar Jacks in Sudan which are good for for mule breeding. So there's a kind of two-way trade with the Sudan. Um, So trading then south from the highlands and northwest uh, from the highlands. If we turn to the Sahel-Sudan belt, uh, this is where there's been all this attention particularly given to war horses, uh, and the added connotation, of course, that these are used for slave catching, for expeditions in which slaves are taken, and the well-known argument that um, West Africa gets itself into an economic bind because uh, it, in order to protect itself from other people it's got to have horses and firearms in order to buy horses and firearms it's got to sell the European slaves and then the firearms and the horses are used to get more slaves and so the whole West Africa gets into a kind of terrible vicious circle of slaving in which the need of, for horses is one of the components also important in the colonial conquest so this is Roughly the area we're talking about runs across the whole uh, of Africa, and um, this is a kind of romantic picturing of the uh, Mossi cavalry, what's today Burkina Faso. Um, note uh, the use of quilted cotton uh, armor for both the horses and the riders. These are the French with their vatuille affair, but they love these things, and their mules uh, conquering the uh, the, uh, the French West Africa. And this is a modern uh, photo. This is a of rejoicing at the end of Ramadan uh, with the sort of pageantry that goes around it. A lot of horses are used especially for this, not really much used for anything else. Uh, these kind of big uh, dongola horses in particular are more for show than for anything else. What's been very much neglected in West Africa and across the Sahel Sudan belt then is the importance of uh, pack and riding donkeys of transport. This really is where the camels have stolen the show and everybody goes on and on about those darn camels crossing the Sahara, but actually a lot more in the way of goods was going east-west uh, on the backs. Donkeys, so here they are in Timbuktu. Note that the photo is taken for Timbuktu, not for the donkeys. The donkeys just happen to get into the photo. as so often happens with animals. Uh, but here we have uh, women riding donkeys in Mauritania. This is quite important because often it is women who ride donkeys, so there's a gender uh, aspect to this. More women here riding donkeys in Chad, so again the, the gender side to uh, here we have a kind of mixture of riding and pack in Darfur. Um, this possibly actually is a small mule rather than a donkey, I'm not entirely sure. Um, mule transport has definitely been uh, totally marginalised. I think it's very unfortunate that Robin Moore said that they were just bred by chance, and, you know, so we don't need to think about them. In fact, Paul Lovejoy has shown that mules were extremely important for the um, cola nut caravans, which brought uh, cola nuts from today Ghana to uh, what is today northern Nigeria. In fact, Lovejoy says that these were generally speaking not mules, they were actually hinnies, so they were from donkey mothers and horse fathers. The reason being a simple one, really, that uh, in these areas, donkeys are the abundant equid, horses are the rare equid, and in those situations, will tend to have hinnies rather than, than mules. Um, here we have Bath's illustration of approaching Timbuktu. Now here, what's interesting is the horses and the camels are ridden, but the mules are used for pack. Here we have um, a muleteer, a Salinke muleteer, in West Africa from 1890. And here we have a, a missionary, who I think is riding a horse, but he's got a uh, mule for his uh, pack in West Cameroon area, which is relatively free from disease. We also strangely, remarkably almost, have horses in colonial towns. Now, they don't last very long, they usually die within six months, so this is just conspicuous consumption. It's just to show that you're a rich and powerful and wealthy person, Uh, you have your horse and carriage. So This is uh, the Honourable Thomas uh, Hutton Mills, one of the great uh, Creole families, black families of the the coastal Ghana, Uh, you're going out in your horse and carriage to show that you've made it, you've made a load of loot, and you're damn well going to show that you're rich. But it's not a practical way of organising urban transport in West Africa because the death rate from disease is so high and so rapid. So a a town like Lagos is actually particularly unusual in the speed with which it moves to motor transport. It's actually ahead of much of the rest of the world in uh, embracing motor transport. Here we have another example of the same kind. This is from Spanish Guinea. Uh, We have the Hausa King on his horse, and this Hausa King uh, who was the kind of local um, uh, boss boy of the house of workers uh, on the plantations in, uh, in Spanish Guinea, uh, used to import a horse every year because his horse regularly died every year, so he just imported another one uh, to chunder around, showing what an important man he was. So here, very much conspicuous consumption. Um, agriculture. Uh, th- th- an attempt then to push uh, agri- uh, horses, agri- murals, but really donkeys especially. So this photo which I had on my um, uh, poster is peculiarly odd. It's a German photo and wonderfully worked out in 1928 and it tells you where it is and it's all terribly Germanic in its uh, organisation. But what on earth were they doing using horses to plough for cotton in Togo? I mean this really is an area where horses are extremely vulnerable uh, to disease. Uh, I just don't know some of these pictures are really interesting, but you'd like to know the story behind it, and, and the story uh, isn't there. It's one of the frustrations of images. Uh, this is much more sensible. This is uh, Jill sent me. This is a, uh, um, something to do with Christmas. Uh, you know, you can oh, yes. buy. A, yeah, you can buy a share. Of mm-hmm. and, but this is basically a, a, techn- a planning technology developed in Darfur and introduced into uh, Ethiopia. So the trade here then is um, partly across the Zara. I'm not denying that there were horses which crossed the Zara, but I think a lot more of them actually came uh, across the Red Sea and and sideways uh, across this this belt. Um, And there's also a a certain uh, importation from the (laughs) Tetsu-free offshore uh, islands. There's also an internal trade uh, in this area from Muslim to non-Muslim areas in terms of meat. This is particularly donkey, a very, very strong trade in Nigeria today, because it is haram for Muslims to eat donkey meat. It's halal to eat wild ass meat, so it's one of these rather strange things within Islam, but it's definitely haram to eat domestic donkey. And so the donkeys are sold south for uh, eating uh, after they've uh, had their uses. So this is very much a a movement down into the forest uh, from the um, Sahel. In East Africa then, um, we have these donkeys, probably the first donkeys in East Africa were adjuncts to cattle uh, pastoralists, uh, Maasai particularly, uh, obviously, amongst these uh, groups. And they're women's animals. right? They, if you ask Maasai men about donkeys, they simply howl with laughter. It's not, a, it's not an answer that a man can give. Right? So you have to go and ask the women about donkeys, because it's the women who use them. Um, and they, they rely on them to a very considerable degree. Again, this is a classic example of a, a shot, which is a kind of tourist shot of the Maasai, but somehow the donkeys get caught in the background. Right? Nobody's really intending to show you the donkeys, but there they are. So uh, over time, then, these uh, donkeys are used more in caravans uh, in the 19th century. They're ridden, they're used for high-value goods, but very, very little in the way of draft. So this is Burton and Speak, pictured by locals on their way to the Great Lakes. And if you read Burton's um, diaries of his uh, trip up to the lakes, I mean, donkey's just, you know, all over the place. He's actually obsessed with his donkeys, with keeping them alive, with uh, getting them to to get to where he wants to get. Um, This is a modern move to draft, then, so here we've got the donkey pulling a cart uh, in Somalia. Um, In East Africa, both mule and horse transport really don't exist. I mean, this is the area most affected by taxi. Um, and as African horse sickness on top. So there are attempts, and there are nice pictures. This is a German uh, lady missionary on a, a white mule. It means almost certainly this is a mule bred from a, a big white riding donkey from the Middle East, a uh, Saudi uh, donkey. Uh, and here we have in Mozambique a, a mule cart again. But it doesn't take off. It just doesn't work. The disease uh, is not, uh, doesn't allow it. Again, for the same reason, there's very little sort of military use of, of mules, but again, or any equids but again, there's attempts uh, to use them. So here we have German officers riding their mules uh, with uh, the Ascari. Uh, and here's rather a nice picture. This is Belgian mule drawn artillery in 1916 entering Tabora in Tanganyika. How the hell they kept their mules alive long enough to get their artillery to Tabora is a very interesting question, which I to like <coughs> know more about. And here is this is Mau these are pack horses of the King's African Rifles, probably in fact in the north of Kenya. Uh, also in East Africa, then, uh, donkeys are used uh, quite commonly as food, not uh, other equids, um, but the Kikuyu, for instance. So this is a donkey carcass uh, being prepared. The Kikuyu eat a huge amount of donkeys, very popular meat in that area. Finally, then, um, Southern Africa. Um, we have a problem here with the established Iconic supremacy of the oxwagon. Right? The oxwagon is that picture everybody recognizes straight away as a South African uh, picture. But in fact, in reality, lots and lots of transport in Southern Africa is actually done uh, by equids of various types. Not just horses, but actually a lot of mules uh, and donkeys. And this is particularly important every time you have a big surge in bovine diseases. So when Rinderpest virtually eliminates the cattle of Southern Africa in the late 1890s, you get a real movement to using uh, equids instead. Um, This is a a Soutu horseman today. One of the things you notice immediately in the Soutu is the number of people who ride. Um, This is another mule cart, I think actually this time on the South African side of the Limhobo, about 1910. Uh, Note the interesting use of three mules. It's quite an interesting way of using (coughs) them. Uh, and this is another interesting way of harnessing, this is a powerful six-donkey Tswana uh, uh, wagon uh, today, which shows what you can do even with a humble donkey. Now, partly because of the uh, high death rates of <coughs> in, uh, in southern Africa, and particularly with this surge of bovine diseases at the end of the 19th century, um, there is an attempt to a move to mules away from horses which people were used to in coaching revolution, one of the only parts of Africa where you get a coaching revolution um, but also to add zebras tame zebras uh, to the uh, mule uh, assembly so this is a photo taken in 1893 you see the zebras all lined up um, quietly behaving themselves but note that the front animals and the back animals are not zebras I think almost certainly they're mules and this may be why which is the Illustrated London News' take on the same thing. Um, the zebra is completely out of control. So there is this notion that although this was attempted, it didn't really work terribly well. Uh, but I'm not sure that's entirely true. You also get mules pulling railways. People often think that once you get rails down, you have to have chuff-chuff locomotives. In fact, all around the world, lots and lots of trains are pulled by animals. You know, this is in Marqueland in the northwestern Cape, uh, with, um, which had a mule-drawn rail system for a long time. Uh, it wasn't substituted by steam for, for, for decades. Urban transport is also very prominent in southern Africa, where it makes more sense because the uh, conditions are somewhat healthier. Um, this is a mule-drawn tram in Kimberley, um, but you get all sorts of different contraptions which are used for urban transport in southern Africa. You also get um, use of equids in mining, particularly early Kimberley, they used a great deal in the uh, first development of the Kimberley diamond mines, but underground use in southern Africa is very rare. Uh, other parts of the world, of course, we have lots of pit ponies, we have lots of uh, equids which are used underground, and in America they breed special, very small mules for use in, in mining. In America, they're very common, but not, I think, here. This is another interesting southern African thing: just to make statues to donkeys. This particular statue. Um, I think this is Peter. uh, This is um, Petersburg, Petersburg, right? Uh, Which has actually been set up that stresses the role of donkeys in uh, mining. In agriculture, then we, although Europeans do develop plough agriculture, uh, it's largely with oxen. But the Western Cape, the southwestern Cape, uses mules. Um, Jan Smuts uh, nearly died as a child by falling through the uh, roof of his father's barn and (coughs) being kicked to death by his father's mules and his father was a wheat farmer in the, in the Western Cape. And then further north, and into Namibia, uh, more uh, donkeys. And donkeys are on the rise today, and donkeys were extremely important, even in the colonial period, for irrigation. So this is a kind of cigarette card that shows you a large farmyard mule, um, which is possibly a um, South American mule. Uh, and this is a, a mission farm mule in uh, Namibia, San here, here, around about 1900. And this is a four-donkey team uh, ploughing in Zimbabwe today. So this is what's developing more, is this kind of use of donkeys for uh, this kind of draft work. And here we have another sweet little statue in Uppington uh, to the donkeys who spent so much time going round and round and round in endless circles (laughs) raising the water for agriculture. But um, in South Africa, there's also been a huge emphasis, not just in transport, but also, in fact, more on war uh, with... And here also on hunting, on professional hunting, the, the Boer Hunter and the Boer Commander uh, are the sort of figures on horseback, uh, which are constantly referred to. Some of this technology adopted by some Africans, particularly by Sutu, and the huge value then given to salted horses before the 1930s to recovered from African horses. This is a kind of rather romanticized picture. Unfortunately, it did really happen like this, but it shows you the kind of European horsemen against the Zulu. Um, on foot with their spears and their uh, shields. This is a Sutu uh, pony, which is developed from the Boer and of the war um, horse. And this is one of the famous War Horse um, memorials. The Boer War was one of the most lethal for horses as ever been in, in the history of humanity. Not on the Boer side, because the Boers knew how to look after their horses, but on the British side, the number of horses killed through disease and mismanagement. Uh, every mistake in the book was made by the British. And somebody wrote to Lord Kitchener, saying you will go down as the greatest killer of horses in history, uh, which is uh, possibly true. Note, however, that the British learnt their lesson from the Boer War, and that we note that in the subsequent wars, the treatment of horses and mules is much, much more uh, effective and humane, and mortality and morbidity rates are much lower, particularly in the First World War. And here we have Sutu um, muleteers abroad, sent off to Italy to fight in the Second World War, uh, drawing um, Howitz's in that murderous campaign of the, the Italian spy. So finally then, the trade uh, of Southern Africa and Equids. Uh, there is some exporting of courses, um, particularly to India in the early 19th century for the British Indian Army. Uh, Capers, um so called from Cape, are uh, quite popular with uh, artillery units uh, in India. But Southern Africa basically can't overcome its disease problem. And um, once the uh, mineral revolution, the mining revolution, hits in the 1860s, the increase in demand for equities locally is so great that uh, South Africa turns into a major net importer uh, of mules, and again, particularly South American mules. So here we have the extremely badly and misleadingly named cattle boats from Buenos Aires, to Durban, which are not carrying cattle at all, they're carrying mules. And this is a problem of terminology that the old use of cattle meant domestic animals in general, whereas today we tend to refer capital to we tend to use the word cattle to mean cows, bogies. So again, this this is the trade coming from uh, the River Plate uh, to South Africa. So, in conclusion, then, um, what I'm going really to try and say is that Sub Saharan Africa is definitely a global uh, laggard in uh, using. It, uh, I don't want to uh, deny that, but I think that there's been a tendency just to ignore the use that has been made of them, and particularly for uh, donkeys and mules, and particularly for donkeys, in fact. And I would like to enter a final plea for the tamed and hybridised zebra, because my own feeling is that we have we have given up on these experiments uh, too quickly, uh, and that actually this could be an appropriate form of technology for uh, parts of Africa. Um, the uh, Huge advantage of the zebra is that it's resistant to very many of these horrible diseases. It's uh, trypanotolerant. It's resistant to African horse sickness. Although one of the problems which we've discovered is that when you tame them and you have them in large concentrations of tamed animals, they tend to become much more susceptible to these nasty diseases, which is slightly unfortunate. But um, nevertheless, I think one should go back and one should go look at these records of, of what people did in terms of taming and hybridising uh, and try and use this a bit
0: more. Thank you. Great. Thank you very much. <laughs> that, that really did open up a lot for me. That's great. Can we can we just sort of throw this open? as there people who've got questions for William or comments? What's your think? Yes, you have. Go ahead, Alan. Uh,
2: first of all, I apologise. I'm um, sorry, full sacking, and I apologise for coming late. Um, I, my train was delayed. It wasn't my fault, honestly. Secondly, I've got um, three books on uh, donkeys in Africa available. I brought them up here especially because so, I thought not many people would want to come to a subject like seminars unless they're interested. And so don't go without a copy please. Yeah. Um, and yes, can I start, you know, obviously lots of very interesting things that you, you, you said. Um, I think maybe you need to extrapolate now to the future, um, you know, ba- basically what is happening now or what has been happening over the last 20, 30 years and also bring in bicycles and motorcycles um, and apartheid um, and, issues like that, because uh, there are a whole lot of cultural, social issues coming in. Um, geographically, I think one of the things that you need to highlight is the fact that the, the, the line that you showed is descending southwards. And if you go to a village in West Africa, you can actually go to a village where people just north of it, they say, yes, they're using it. Just to the south, they're saying, they're thinking of using it, and there, they're using it for the first time this year. And that line is really is, you can kind of draw it on a map, um, you know, it, it, it doesn't exist. <coughs> And that is going. It's not exactly straight, but it's going parallel, you know, on the whole through South Africa. So that is increasing the use um, in Southern Africa. I think one of the issues you um, you didn't uh, is that in Namibia and in uh, Namakwaland, you said they actually in the nineteen fifties, forties, thirties, they had three furrow plows, and some of them are still in use today. So teams of up to sixteen donkeys. I've I've, I've seen them. I've got photos of, of, of them. You know, pulling you know, three furrowed plows, a really large-scale agriculture, um, uh, and that's it. But, again, for southern Africa, I think you really need to think about the problem of apartheid, the psychological problems at that core, which is why Lesotho, yes, people like riding horses, but there are very few donkeys there, and one of the reasons is they're regarded as backward. And up to the 1950s, you had this um, uh, uh, very large uh, population of donkeys in southern Africa used by whites. donk three books. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, th- 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 in southern africa you, you've got th- uh, the whites were using donkeys up to the 1950s for the transport well mainly for transport on-farm transport mm-hmm. and so they were widely used and then the, the whites um, they, trans- they, they changed the backies as they call them pickups mm-hmm. and so they thought getting rid of donkeys was modernization and this was imparted very much onto the local population and then you had the great the Massacre where they actually went around The police went around shooting donkeys because they regarded them as backwards. And I've interviewed people who said that. They, you know, a woman who had four donkeys and the police came along and shot them. And she, you know, because they were backward. And this still goes on today. And so now in southern Africa, you say that they're increasing. They would be increasing if it was entirely a free market. But it's incredibly. The market is really rigged by perceptions and by um, subsidised tractors. And so there's uh, um, the, the use of the in southern Africa. Um, another interesting issue is that you're just getting to the stage now where the southern African population, which is I think genetically different from the eastern and northern Africa, they're about to meet in in northern Zambia, um, uh, southern Tanzania, you know, and so those two populations are about to meet. Yeah, well that's interesting. Thank you very much. Um, well, mainly um,
1: yes, interesting. But one of the things about large donkey teams is that I've also come across uh, twenty donkey teams for pulling. Um, vehicles. Um, so in Australia I come across a seventy-two donkey team <laughs> for putting a huge six wheeled dray. But I mean how the hell do you manage seventy-two donkeys at one day? Uh, I, I really don't know. But certainly it's you know, often people say the donkey is too small to be useful. But in fact of course if you just increase the number up, uh, you can actually get quite a good um On the whole question of donkeys as backward, I mean this is just such a huge problem. Um, because of course it runs through our own culture. I mean, it's not, you know, we have all these epithets where we compare people to donkeys and you know, as stupid and, and all the rest of it. Uh, and then it's very unfortunate as American collapse of uh, ass and ass, uh, which in American pronunciation come together, in which in fact is well, why I have to say donkey nowadays. Um, and so that there are a number of, sort of really unfortunate cultural phenomena uh, all around this. And it's peculiarly odd, I find, in in Western society, because of the role of the donkey in the New Testament and the, mm. the appearance of Christ in triumph in Jerusalem on the donkey, and yet it doesn't seem to have overcome the sort of deep um, anti donkey feelings which, which lie. So there is there is really a lot to be done just at a psychological level. On the great book of the massacre, um, there is, however, another factor that I have to bear in mind, which is the question of competition for pasture. Um, this is something also which has been a particular problem in Australia where they've been shooting wild donkeys with high velocity rifles from, um, from helicopters and things um, but the idea being that the, the wild donkeys, the feral donkeys um, are ruining the, the classroom, competing with more useful animals. And we have this, exactly the same problem with horses in eastern Indonesia They're quite reputable uh, development specialists are saying get rid of the horses because they, they eat too much and um, you know we want that pasture for cows, uh, which are more valuable. So there is a problem of com- competition between species as well, which is that is um, often
3: promoted
4: by governments, I think. Yeah. That some um, texts go around saying that donkeys ruin, ruin pastures and stuff, don't they? In, in South Africa, in the textbooks in South Africa, there are about
2: ten definite lies about donkeys. <laughs> um, and saying donkeys eat all the time. Well, they don't. You know, the donkeys do this. You know. And basically, these were all post-1950s Afrikaners writing them down or, or uh-huh. you know, ba- basically it was white propaganda. But I was asked once, sorry, brief anecdote, but I was asked to, to look at contraception for donkeys in Namakwa land. And they said, uh, uh, the, the South African I was with said, took me to the people and said, look, there are too many bloody donkeys here. Look, they're everywhere. There are donkeys everywhere. Um, and I went in and I said, can we just ask some questions, you know, you know how many donkeys do you have? and they had three. How many do you want? Four. Why do you not have four? Because it's so difficult to find donkeys here because they are, uh, uh, um, it would go to 100 kilometers up to Kimberley to get donkeys. Mm -hmm. Um, So are there any donkeys over there that people don't know? No. Are any donkeys there without a name? No, they've all got names, they've all got donkeys. It is the perception of the whites. And the reason why they explained was that the Mercedes go up the fast roads, very, very fast, the donkey comes on the road, it breaks it, the donkey's worth 50 rand, the the broken headlight is worth 500 rand. And they mm-hmm. say, ah, this is nobody's donkey. This is the wild donkey. <coughs> <coughs> yeah. yeah, no, there's uh, a whole set of problems. But things, I think, are getting better. I think it's actually
3: improving, no? Well,
4: they are shifting, shifting. The donkeys around Africa a lot now, aren't they? There's a no. huge demand. Split the Jones said, leave it in Zambia. Ah. Th- 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 there, has, th- there has been, but I would say that
2: uh, professionally, I have I'm passionate for donkeys, but I've found very difficult getting any professional. That really, the really, the only pr- support for donkeys tends from animal protection societies, yeah. which is obviously then not wanting them to work particularly. Hard. So, uh, but from agricultural ministries, transport ministries, um, there's almost mm-hmm. no no support at all. And it's very interesting. There are two things that are happening. One is that um, in Tanzania in particular, the the donkeys and the the bicycles are in competition because you can carry. About 200 kilograms on a pushed bicycle, um, and then you can cycle back. Um, and then now, motorcycles, and in many countries, the motorcycles, the motorbodies, boat, they're really coming up very, very fast. Um, and, and they are completely um, changing the, the balance. And a huge cultural thing here, because motorcycles are almost entirely male, as you pointed yeah, out yeah, yourself, yeah. women are very often allowed to use um, donkeys. But there are very few women drivers of motorcycles in mm. rural Africa, and so there's a, a huge effect of this change. But at least the donkeys
1: and the horses and the mules don't consume petrol. So once the petrol shortage uh, come back, again.
5: i know that, and I also have an interest in epidemiology. Um, I mean, I completely agree with you that infectious disease has been a, a very significant concern particularly for the equine population. I mean, what do you think about the One Health initiative that focuses specifically on zoonotic disease and transmits between human and animals? I mean, certainly from the veterinary community point of view, it's something which vets from the West in particular have really pushed the significance of One Health because I guess it furthers their own relevance <coughs> within the global health agenda. But do you think this has actually had a potential negative impact on? the the investigation of non-zoonotic disease? Well,
1: I mean, you know, if you're looking at something like um, trypanosoma ivansi, which Mm. doesn't affect humans, um, this kind of thing's been a disaster. And I mean, i found that trying to get uh, papers accepted at conferences uh, which are on on medical history, and I say, well, I want to talk about um, animal disease. Oh, no, no, no. We can't have you. Um, So, I mean, obviously uh, when you have common disease or diseases which jump the species barrier, I mean, that can that can help to direct some attention to animals, Literally. but it's kind of mixed blessing in a way yeah. because it's still saying we're only really interested if it affects humans. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I mean, the amount of research that's been on on, uh, on uh, killing trypanosomes, you know, within a kind of eventsy framework is virtually nil. Um, uh, something uh, you mentioned
4: conspicuous consumption, forces and so on they die in a year. Um, something we need to get beyond is a European mindset about animals dying. That in Africa, they, the donkeys in particular are often regarded as completely disposable. Um, as you know, I was in yeah. Ethiopia this last summer, and tens of thousands of donkeys are imported every year into Western Ethiopia, and I saw um, many hundreds of them just in the few days I was there coming in. And they use them for plowing, and then they die of to um, it's a quick death, by the way. <laughs> the mm. Poor donkey just feels ill for three days and dies. It's, mm. uh, it doesn't sort of stop or sort anything. Of but um, <laughs> it, they they just bury them in huge pits mm. in the villages. Whereabouts and, is this sort um, of Gambela? or? Um, this is, is in western. Uh, this is uh, with Jawi. It's uh, oh. west of Bahir Oh, well, okay. in, mm. in the uh, beyond the hills there, yeah. mm-hmm. and they're coming from the uh, coming from the main breeding areas north of Bahir right. Um and. Um, every year, tens of thousands brought, and they're just disposed of. Yeah. And so we have to bear in mind
0: that we're not, they're not trying to save them. Yeah. No. No. ask a of follow-up because I was wondering mm. how different Ethiopia is. Partly going back to your psychological yeah. thing and the Christian iconography is part really of it. Area, but but also, you yeah, but you see them a lot. I see them a lot in coffee-growing areas in Ethiopia. Yeah. Yeah, used to yeah. a lot. But all, I was wondering on your appropriate technology thing, yeah. whether they get used on the fringes of massive infrastructure things like, like the GERD, you know, like the dam construction, because yes. there's so much other stuff that goes on around that. I just don't know. I'm oh, there's curious.
1: a huge use of construction there. the it's a very yeah. common use. And on the disposability, I and mean, I think it's quite important to note that um, Caribbean planters have exactly the same mentality, both for slaves and for animals. It's the same yes, yeah, exactly. Exactly the same mentality. It's cheaper to import new ones. And to keep them alive.
2: When the Ethiopians um, defeated the Eritreans, that was partly because of the donkeys. They went up over the mountains using donkeys. So there's a military application as well, yeah. a modern-day military application
3: yeah. for donkeys. No, and
1: people keep saying that uh, animals are no longer being used in war. And every time we have another war, what happens? We get the animals back again. If you look at you know, Afghanistan, I and mean, the initial support to the Northern Alliance was dropping hay to feed the horses of the Northern Alliance. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, in fact, getting rid of animals from more, much as one might want to on grounds of cruelty to animals
2: uh, is actually a totally difficult thing to do. You know, on this the disease and the life expectancy in, in West Africa, is very much, and um, we are talking about the disposal of animals, that people right at the edge of the fringe bit, it, they regard them as, you know, you buy them for this year and maybe you have to buy another the next year. They don't want them to die, so they, they would prefer them to survive, of course, a, mm. a few villages further up. and and then. In, in the I mean in northern, in the Gambia, which is, a, is one of them, um, and, until the 1960s, there were virtually no donkeys in the Gambia. Then they were existing mm-hmm. in the 70s, but they only last lived one or two years. Now they will live 10 or even 20 ye- years in the Gambia, and then moving south in t- into the other country. So it's just is impl- of, of basically as, as the, the disease challenge lessens the, 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 mm-hmm. the le- length of the donkeys lives. But luckily, there is a breeding population Further north, that is able to supply this constant demand.
1: And the other problem, of course, is the cost of medicines. I mean, there are medicines to control these diseases, but for ordinary Africans, they're just you know completely out of out of range. So somewhere like a in northern Namibia or southern Angola, where donkeys have become a big thing recently, again this is another area where they weren't big before, but they've hugely increased. Um, people say to them, "Well, you can keep your donkeys alive if only you know, give them." shots of Naganol or something and they said well how are we going to afford it it's just not possible so there is a, a, a again the problem of drug research is important because if anyone could actually mm-hmm. produce drugs for cheaper cheaper to administer as well as easier to administer and this would be a big big difference
0: is there a, is there a big sort of problem with accurate statistics given that ministries of agriculture are not interested and so on yeah, Dunkers, yeah. must be
1: I mean, historically, donkeys are the hardest thing to get out because mm. they're just not counted. All they're counted together with mules, which is quite, really irritating. Uh, but I mean, this is, again, it's not just true of Africa. I mean, if you look at the First World War, we know down to the last horse, you know, more or less, how many were used. We know there were thousands and thousands of donkeys used in the First World War on the Western mm-hmm. Front. But how many, exactly? Nobody mm. kept any statistics. The French just got all these donkeys from Algeria. Once they realised they were cheaper and easier and better in the trenches because they were smaller, and so they were less of a target. But they never counted them. Extraordinary. So the donkeys were always left out, they're always at the bottom of the pile. But I, I would say that. The, sorry,
0: sorry you go ahead in the back please? Yeah, just,
6: just on current read from the book, just on statistics, I think that would be one area that we could really, different organisations and academics, really support improvement yeah. because I mean we've had some quite good success with both Kenya and with Ethiopia in actually getting donkeys not reclassified officially but actually seen as livestock apart from livestock uh-huh. passages so they actually do start to count. And I don't have the figures on me but for a, in the census in Kenya uh, 15 years ago the population of donkeys was apparently almost zero which obviously it wasn't but when actually donkeys were finally were actually looked at suddenly they realised there was a significant population of donkeys in Kenya, it's so in Ethiopia they are now actually adding that to their census figures. And partly it might be a way, it might be by reclassifying them as livestock for certain situations, so that therefore, even, even the discussion with the likes of Med or with OIE actually starting to call them livestock for certain purposes of recording. And then there is the idea about what they're used for and whether they mm. pay for power women or they part of the whole one health thing. is not just about diseases, but also about the fact that they're used to carry people to healthcare. Yes. Um maternity units, drugs, backwards, coal chains
1: of vaccines around. So there's a I think they're integrated into one health and of in a wider area than g Disease. I didn't even realise that they weren't classified as mm-hmm. last mm-hmm. That's
6: interesting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, you begin with the question of whether uh, like the
2: lack of equids would be uh, a source for underdevelopment.
6: And then um, I would ask you like, if the oxen could not uh, be like, another way out for them, like if they had oxen, even if they didn't have enough uh,
7: equids?
1: Yes, I mean, there's something to that. I mean, um, a lot of these animals are substitutable in what they do, but oxen are much slower. Mm. Um, so in terms of transport, um, equids are really preferable. On the other hand, oxen often become more powerful, so that um, in terms of if you want to do clout, which is a big question, um, might be better. So the, I, I would say that, yes, to some extent. And the fact that, that um, in a way, Africa has chosen to focus more on cattle um, may reflect a uh, better. But I, I think in many cases that you, you can very profitably use both and you could use them for different purposes. Um, and, of course, they're also subject to different diseases. So when you get the big Rinderpest epidemic, which sweeps through eastern and southern Africa in the 1890s and kills you know, 90% of cattle, at least you've got something to fall back on, whereas if you had only them, we um, would have been much deeper trouble. So I, I, th- there is some, some truth to that. And, of course, there are other animals which you don't get at all in Africa, which... Um, for instance, the the African buffalo has never been um, domesticated, whereas you know, the water buffalo in Asia plays an extremely important parts of southern Europe and the Middle East plays an extremely important role. So I think it's one could say more widely that the the sort of palette of animals which are available to Africans is relatively restricted, and that I think that does cause some problems. On that issue, the
2: first issue is security. I mean, Basically, cattle are expensive. They really are valuable, mm-hmm. and they're very easily converted into money. You just take it, you can sell it, um, and it, as meat. Um, whereas uh, donkeys, in particular, um, in lots of countries they don't eat eaten or in the only in parts of the country, and therefore they're much much less of a risk. And so, the, one of the biggest reasons why you choose donkeys these days rather than oxen is is the, a the cost. They're a lot of money. Yeah. In 400 500 dollars, because a donkey is maybe fifty, hundred dollars. So huge difference in price, and then uh, t- security. Um, I think you're overplaying the the um, indigenous animals. Um, I think there has been much more attempts to uh, try with zebras than you are implying, mm-hmm. um, and, and basically it was never highly successful. And there have been attempts to try with buffaloes. I, I've photos of them ploughing in Kenya. You know, wow. it can be done, but basically, um, why spend all that time? And, and even with water buffaloes, I mean, the, the USID imported a whole lot from um, Thailand into northern Senegal for the, the, the area there um, for, for rice production. Um, you know, and, and I just said, look, the place is surrounded by oxen, um, you know, cattle, they're just there everywhere. They're very cheap. Even with 50 years of breeding, you know, it's going to take a long time to build up a population. And they're also well, it's going to be more expensive exotic animals because they're bigger. And why not just use two local uh, zebra oxen to plough rather than one big fat, uh, very precious uh, water buffalo? So it just, the economics of it don't make so. so uh, I
1: what I? happened to the water buffaloes? Did they survive?
2: Well, they're, they're, the, the Americans. Have, uh, Irrigated the sand dunes to try to feed them. Mm. They brought in air conditioners to keep them cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, it's, it's idea, I mean, I, I, I can give you the report, it's amazing, this story. But yeah, they're, 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 they're probably an inbred herd, probably just about surviving. But they, right. they, they, they never got onto the farmer's fields. Mm. And, and why should they? Because and the other thing is that they said, you know, a buffalo is too good for plant. But in Asia, I mean, we in Europe think that are, the buffalo is the iconic animal for Asia. And it is in the Philippines and a few places. But actually, far more cattle oxen are used for plowing in Asia than are buffaloes. So in India, far more oxen are used for plowing. In nearly all the countries, I think I think the Philippines is about the only one uh, where, even in Indonesia where there are lots of buffaloes, still cattle are far more used, including cows. So you know, why bother to use buffaloes unless they've got a comparative advantage? Um, and they haven't got a comparative advantage in Africa, so it will always be more expensive and more susceptible to disease.
7: Hmm.
1: Anybody prepared to fight for another animal? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure that uh, there aren't others which have been neglected.
4: Well, on, the, um, on the donkey again, um, a donkey is much more useful for transport if there isn't a road mm-hmm. and, and can carry much more per, I- per its own weight than, than an ox. So, um, mm-hmm. if you um, get rid of the um, um, what were they called, the voiture, the thing? Fact, yes, <laughs> um, a donkey is, is yeah. your, your option. Yeah, today
2: you just uh, read about a missionary who uh, went to the Highlands in Angola riding
4: an ox and it took him four months. <laughs> mm. <laughs> in some a few regions of Africa, they do by oxen, but it's not the norm. Mm. But, but but basically the.
2: Uh, commercial packet equids. And I think one thing on your slides, you need to be careful when you were talking about the. You talked about the, the trade across West and East Africa with donkeys. Then you showed pictures of women riding, and those are completely yeah, different uses. The women are using for well short distance domestic yeah. use, you know, and, and it is probably the men controlling the long distance. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, basically. I'm fascinated by donkeys and mules, and I always try to see them every country I go. But increasingly, the wretched engineers are building roads more and more to connect the villages. And so they're getting further and further away, and more and more difficult to see in photograph. You know, they are really coming really to the per- periphery. And mm. one of the th- things one finds is that consultants don't get a chance to get out to the real poor areas, because it takes too long to travel. Um, and, and that's why. So increasingly, the, the mules and donkeys, this is more in Asia than Africa, are being moved to the periphery. And, again, as I mentioned, one of the things that's happening with increasing use of bicycles and motorcycles, which they can't be used on steep mountain paths, but they can be used on rough tracks. And increasingly, um, the, the motorcycles are now going way beyond the roads mm. and connecting villages that were not <coughs> before. And I think this is going to have a big socio-organic impact on the use of animals. Um, it may be that the donkeys will survive in West Africa, for example, because of their use for agriculture as well. Um, and, and so it's not just the transport uses. In places where they're mainly transport use, then I think the comparative advantage of bicycles and uh, dom- uh, motorcycles is going to increase with availability okay. um, and also with prestige. And mm. therefore there is, a, again, a, a, a chance there for them to, to become less in, in importance. Mm. Well, and of course the 4x4 four four is is um,
1: taking the car further and further from the road to the land cruise not much direct the competition, though, between donkeys and... No, that's more between yes. large animals. Yeah. Um, I mean, another animal which uh, nobody's raised, of course, is the elephant, um, which is uh, your largest transport animal of all, and where the, you also get quite important attempts to domesticate the African elephant, um, which have all been given up. Um, there are photos of elephants ploughing and elephants doing what and Eland yeah. is yeah, another
4: one. I think right. they're, they're having another go at domesticating elan though i saw something recently mm-hmm. but the, the elephants um, uh, were trained
2: in the old congo survived in zaire for for many many years and um they're now uh, elephants being used in safaris in botswana i think as well so so oh, there there are renewed but it's a tourist industry i mean they're, they're not they're not going to be used by smallholder farmers and even in in asia increasingly this last year myanmar has um, stop the use of elephants for logging, which is you know means that they're going to be just used for um, weddings and temples. Like yeah. So there's a, a, a big.
1: There may only be that there's not much future, but of course, as a historian, that doesn't bother me because we're <laughs> <laughs> looking back to see how they were used in the past and how they might have been better used. Um. I mean, just, just to sort of carry on from
5: that, I mean, apart from local economic realities, I mean, I wonder whether or not, particularly with NGO aid, um, whether or not the norms from, from richer countries are being imposed on you know obviously you know it's like the UK equids are literally just leisure animals and that's pretty much it and I wonder whether or not these sorts of norms and obviously a lot of the aid gets funneled through NGOs that that expect the same to, same sort of work and the same sort of application of the animals to happen in the target country to some extent and I wonder if that might have an influence as well on their future
1: or not to I think actually NGOs often have a kind of rather romantic anti-modernisation <laughs> sort of <laughs> uh, attitude. So that I'm... I'm you Do know, you have any examples? I'm just out of
4: curiosity? Well,
1: I mean, I think actually if you look at the whole kind of propaganda in, in, in favour of use of animals mm-hmm. in Africa, it's often premised on the idea that, that Western models are being pushed which are you know, intensive in the use of energy, you need a lot of petrol mm-hmm. to get these things working animals don't need that they can you know they can be fed locally um i think at least some, i'm not talking about all ngos but i think at least some ngos will almost might push that too far i would mean, mm-hmm. say the
2: perception is very much um it, historically it was kind of Europe Africa type differences, now it is urban rural differences mm-hmm. and Europe is mainly urban and there's big cities like Nairobi and Dar es Salaam and that is where the governments are and that is mm-hmm. where the, the, the sources of power are and decisions are and so increasingly the decisions in Africa are being made by people who've been born in urban areas, they don't have their close r- routes to r- rural areas and th- there it is often ignorance I mean people will say in many countries no we are people even in the villages they're not using animals they're using tractors these days or they're not using donkeys they're just using uh, buses and things like this they just don't know and it's very difficult to, you know to say to them they don't know because it's their country but you know they do not get out. And that's one of the problems it is, actually, if you have a busy urban life and you're a busy decision maker, you don't have time to go out to the remote areas. If you go out at all, you go out on a main urban, uh, uh, inter-urban road, and you see some things at the side of the road, but that's not deep rural area. These are just you know, peri-urban, peri-main road uh, mm-hmm. villages. And then those are influenced by the, the urban and the, the Western ideas. So mm-hmm. I, I think there's a huge perception. One of the things that I think the, the roles of working animals, whenever there's a disaster, um, they are always incredibly important, you know, if there is a bridge are out or something like this, suddenly what they want is something that can transverse these things and it's very often animals and so I think one of the ways of keeping them in the the government limelight is, is to say, you know, in preparing for um, climate change, uh, uh, um, being prepared for that, for disasters relating to that. This is the type of thing where you can actually encourage the use of animals or have them available. And certainly having plans for if these bridges are cut off or if these landslides or something happen, you know, how are you going to get the food to the people um, and, and the medicines across? And have you got trained animals? And have you got trained veterinarians who know how to look after them, etc. There's a wonderful picture in the uh,
1: tsunami (coughs) in of uh, elephants being used to clear the roads and
3: get supplies to people after the tsunami, uh, which is a kind of example of this kind of thing. Um, You used the word domesticated, and it Mm. brought back to me, um, just just after Christmas we were in Sri Lanka, and we were told in no uncertain terms that that elephants cannot be domesticated. Um, They can be tamed, and they can be pressed into service but they can't be domesticated in the sense that you cannot breed them uh, for particular characteristics, not in the way in which you do for, for mules and so on. So they objected to the use of the term domesticated and just said they're wild animals which we actually use for, um, you know, for, for agriculture and other purposes.
1: As a description, that's true. In other words, mm. the, the tendency has always been to take elephants from the wild and mm. to tame them and to use them. But it's not true that they can't be domesticated, it's just the economics of it. Uh, An elephant takes a long, long time to reach um, a point at which uh, it can actually do uh, useful work. And in that time, it eats colossal (laughs) amounts, I mean, really colossal amounts. On top of that, you can't castrate an elephant easily because its testicles are way deep inside its body, so you have to have a major operation in order to uh, castrate the thing. So the the male elephants, uh, when they're in must, are really dangerous. And um, in, in that sense, again, we don't want these things hanging around for twenty-five years before we can actually start, you know, doing some work. And so there are all sorts of reasons why people have, uh, you know, tender but it actually it, we, we, it is possible to. to ha- and some of them are domesticated, some of them are bred in captivity. And um, so it's not that they're not <coughs> used to Kabul; it's that the economics of capturing in the wild tend to favour capturing in the wild. And I don't know about African elephants. Their <laughs> mm. <laughs> They're
2: very similarly <laughs> positioned, but, but, it, it, right. but basically, I don't think there's any attempt uh, in mo- mo- recent years to, to breed. I mean, there, it's always been captured in the wild, wild
1: and yeah, and, tamed. Yeah. and a lot of the zebra um, stuff was actually taming, and not domestication. Um, I mean, I think that's part of the problem: is that it never got beyond the taming of a number of animals, It never got to the point of actually uh, proper breeding.
4: Why has taming or domesticating um, increased
1: susceptibility to disease? It's not entirely clear. I mean there, there are lots of theories about this, but I mean one of the problems seems to be that you you herd animals in far too small space and nothing increased or so, you know the tendency of things to but I mean other people would say it's like uh, you maybe know, break their spirits and you know, all so there's lots of kind of psychological stuff which floats around. Um Ultimately, I, I'm not sure that, that we really knew. I mean, another thing which happens with domestication usually is that the animals fall in size. So the domesticated donkey is usually quite a lot smaller than the, the, the wild ass and, and that sort of thing. But that also happens, I and mean, for instance, the, the the dwarfing of elephants happens according to ecological circumstances of small islands. Like in Mediterranean, we used to have um, you know, dwarf elephants. Um, and they were probably in florries and so, I mean, I, I'm probably, probably other people would know better than me. Yeah,
5: so, so with the, the efforts to domesticate, zebra, I mean, do you know what the breeding approach was? Was it specifically selecting certain characteristics and seeing what happened, or did they literally just put up all those zebras together and let them carry? Because I mean, I, mean we just, I just think back to, for example, dog breeding, how horrifically wrong that has gone yeah. um, mm-hmm. since the dog's been domesticated, particularly in the past 100 years or so. I mean, but then that's been human specifically selecting for physical features, which is led yeah. to that. But, I was was that the kind of? I'm I'm not sure that, that the, it ever got
1: that far. I mean, w- I've I've seen some descriptions in the Belgian Congo, where they would uh, capture you know something like a hundred uh, zebras mm-hmm. uh, and bring them all together. But then then we there was a huge outbreak, and it's not clear to me from the source what the outbreak was of, mm-hmm. but something killed off nearly all of them. So. Um, it may be, and of course, something like glanders or something, one of these equine diseases from, from Europe that's possible. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think it ever got to the point of actually selecting particular zebra. There was quite a lot of work, though, on which zebras were most tameable.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and that, because there are a number of different uh, zebras, and I can't quite remember which.
4: Screeders, I think.
1: Yeah. the
4: most
1: no, There was some difference sort of opinion, though. Some yes. people used to think that some were better, and others would think others were better. Um, so, they didn't get that far. Yeah. Sorry.
6: Just to, just to suggest that, an but it's not, I mean, there on the base of the room, I'm there. Um, In terms of domesticating, why you might be then ending up with not keeping, with not keeping, <coughs> having disease problems, because generally, when we yes, as humans are
0: I think, d- I think we have to also be quite careful, disease is a big word. So when we
1: talk about disease, do we mean those that, um, like Karen's saying, you know, we may have selected a, an animal for a, a certain trait, it may be size, it may be conformation, but what we are, un- we may unknowingly be selecting for is poor disease, yeah. particularly infectious disease. But if we're also to look at disease and other health problems such as colics or abdominal issues to do with um, you know, management practices, some of the other issues we see, We could actually be by domesticating these animals actually increasing their risk factors to other diseases. So, we used to have a wonderful message to say disease is the price we pay for domestication. So, these animals weren't, you know, know, in the wild perhaps were grazers, and now we put them in a stable and feed them at set times a day, and they develop colic or abdominal issues as a result of that. So, I think it's just worth teasing out what you mean by disease, and then some of that is probably likely to be associated with our impact management practices that were making these animals more more at risk. There's also the acquisition of resistance over time. So donkeys in East Africa seem to become more no tolerant, um, you know, simply through kind of selection. The animals survive, which have greater tolerance. Uh, So when you brought in a whole series of animals in the First World War, for instance, to fight the Germans, I mean the death rates were just humongous. I mean, virtually every animal died within six months. Uh, Whereas you have local donkeys, which actually survive and live. So there's also this problem
2: of, of um, and of course, we don't know what it is that makes the donkeys so in the Island The University of Illinois in Sierra Leone um, took over an old colonial station where they had been be breeding and dharma cattle for uh, about 50 years. And they castrated all the bulls and brought in um, uh, the, the the black white cattle from Illinois, um, and uh, the idea to increase milk production. And of course, they ended up with, um, Lots of dead Holstein animals, um, and uh, the endama, A uh, lot of genetic progress was uh, re- reduced because of the uh, they eliminated them. But um, mm. you know, in the end, that was given up completely, and that's happened as uh, Karen said in, in so many different cases that basically, mm. you know, it's uh, you know the the indigenous animals have got it, uh, resistance.
4: Surely they must have known about the Holstein. I know the, are the there, is a, there, there, there is a paper
2: that says, compares milk production with a Holstein in <laughs> Illinois with an Ndama in Sierra Leone, you know, and it, and it says, therefore, we've got to get rid of these endama and, and get some decent producing animals, you know. The production of the Holstein in Sierra Leone was zero.
1: Yeah. <laughs> of course, there is also the danger that the wild asses will disappear altogether, which would be a um, disaster in terms of studying, you know, what it is that and how they. Functioning in their natural habitat and, and, and the rest of that, so there is a, a real
2: you know, loss of genetic diversity. as well. There's a, there's a huge. When I was doing the survey in South Africa, a huge variation in the survival rates of donkeys. And in some communities, mm. they say, oh, if, if you give um, a, a, a donkey to a, 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 a couple, you the grandchildren will see the donkey. And it's lasting twenty five years. You know, that. In other places, they say no. They generally they only last about ten years. Mm, yeah. um, and we weren't able to find out, but it's presumably some local. Um mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and the question of fodder actually is quite important too. I mean, looking at horses, for instance, every attempt to uh, crossbreed in Southeast Asia with imported horses has tended to be a disaster because the imported horses won't eat bamboo, and bamboo is a very common fodder for horses in Southeast Asia, mm-hmm. and die starvation basically. <laughs> <laughs> So, there are are, are problems about adaptability to fodder as well as adaptability to disease, which one needs to think about. That's another factor for. Sorry.
3: Um, I just want to ask you one question about the changing perception, so, the history of uh, this kind of animals. Because, though we use them a lot, if we really exploit them, we don't give them really uh, the right recognition especially regarding the economic contribution to the families in elevated poverty. Uh, so did you have or did you see any kind of trend in, in terms of uh, Chinese perception? How the communities themselves see donkeys especially? I think that's a really interesting
1: thing to, to, to do more research on and to... One of the things about donkeys, for instance, is that they're animals which are very often given names. Uh, I mean the animal world tends to the domesticated animal world tends to separate into the animals which to which you give a name and ones to whom you don't give a name um, donkeys on the whole tend to fall on that named end of the spectrum um, so that you do get quite sort of intimate relationships uh, between people and their animals on the other hand we said earlier there are all sorts of mm-hmm. negative stereotypes about animals and very positive stereotypes about horses of course which seen as noble and superior and, and all the rest of it so that I think there are kind of lots of cross currents in this but clearly if you're having the kind of thing that Jill described where you're just getting an animal for a year to work it to death and, you know, then you're not likely to name it in fact it's quite interesting to see when people do name and when people don't name um, if you're going to try and keep it alive you're much more likely to give it a name um, should I say it there were lots of debates about this her or him
7: Uh, So, following up from that um, on change perceptions, uh, you mentioned that in East Africa um, donkeys are mostly used by women, particularly amongst the Maasai. But when uh, donkeys increasingly come into East Africa during the nineteenth century, they are brought by um, Muslim traders who are um, almost entirely men. And I wondered if that, if the um, use of Islam as like a view, as a purview, could maybe as a way of um, seeing uh, changing perceptions of donkeys in regions but is there some kind of as is does, does Islamic introduction of Islam to regions change people's perceptions of donkeys um, in different parts of Africa
1: that's a really interesting question actually because uh, not only the, the traders and men but of course on the caravans it's overwhelmingly a male um, situation so that once you start using donkeys on long distance caravans they're actually working with men rather than with women on the Islamic side, um, Islam has a long and complicated um, wealth of traditions about being kind to animals, um, which I might say are kind of a bit negated by these slaughtering uh, regulations. But but these aren't there is a kind of in a the sense there is a conflict within the Islamic corpus, and it all it's all taken back to the the single rather obscure surah in the Quran where it says you shall not cut the cattle's ears. Um, And from that, the have developed a huge kind of theology of kindness to animals. There's a wonderful book by Anne-Marie Schimmel on this, on Islamic, uh, the late, much lamented, and the on Islamic attitudes towards animals. Of course, I mean, having said all that, it doesn't mean to say there's not a a horrendous catalogue of cruelty to animals which runs through Islamic history. I mean, that's also the case. so the real problem is, um, you know, to what extent would this new ideology, as it came to East Africa, I mean, would it in fact impact on this at all? One of the things I'm really interested in is whether the Islamic bans on breeding mules um, affect uh, Africans, because there are a number of hadiths, um, sayings of the Prophet which say that you shouldn't breed mules. So this is in continuity with the Jewish prohibitions in Leviticus that you can't breed mules. You can use them. The Prophet himself used mules, so uh, the Burak, the prophet's horse, uh, took him to heaven and was uh, sometimes described as half horse, half mule. And 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 historically, the prophet is known to have owned mules, even to have ridden the mule uh, in in battle. So it's not that Muslims are not allowed to use mules, but they're not allowed to breed them. So um, technically, they're meant to only get them from um, infidels who who breed them. Uh, Now, again, is this, in fact, respected in Africa? It seems to me in the Middle East it's very, it's respected in a very uneven way. So the Arab-speaking and Turkish-speaking populations in the Middle East tend to be unhappy about breeding the rules. doesn't mean to say they don't do it. Whereas the Iranian, Kurdish, Berber populations tend to ignore these hadiths completely. Um, and why this should be, it's not a question of the school of law, because this cuts across the different schools of law, so that's not what, what affects it. Right. So what Islam really does to animals is a really interesting question.
6: Happy to um, communities in India who are actually within, they, they were traditionally bear baiters, and actually now moved away from and and actually Which so, communities, should, communities are these? Colunders, colunders oh. colunders and, um, okay, that's
1: interesting because there seems to be some resistance historically. In um, yeah, they and sometimes mule breeding is done by communities which are seen as not very good Muslims. Yes. Uh, you know, or people like that. Um, so, the, 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 yeah, that's, that's interesting. Um, but, I mean, this is also um, continued in southern Europe. For instance, in the Alentejo in Portugal, um, breeding mules is considered to be... The, the, the person who did the actual breeding of mules was ostracised in the villages of the Alentejo as somebody who was basically impure. And the, the answer given um, when you ask them why is because he had to, to touch the donkey's penis, he had to direct the donkey's penis. And this was something which was, which was totally you know, um, polluting and made him impure. Um, so, um, but I think there's some, there's some element of um, Islamic prejudice against being actually survived in, in southern Iberia as well. So this whole question of, of hybrids, and it's not just mules, it's hybrids in general. Is it, is it right or is it wrong? To, to breed hybrids, to, to cross the species barrier, to make uh, animals which are sterile, and uh, which are against God's plan, you know, to use the kind of monotheistic uh, phrasing of this, is something which runs right across. I mean, you get it in Europe too. I mean, you get Spanish uh, anti-mule uh, campaigners who will quote Leviticus um, and say, you know, it's in Leviticus,
3: therefore we shouldn't breed mules. Um. And I like the um, Italian MPs recently.
1: What have they been doing?
3: 54 <laughs> Italian MPs have told the British that they should uh, throw out this law, which uh, which creates um it make, creates uh, humans out of out of three people using uh, mitochondria from one plus. Oh so yeah 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 but yes, because that's uh, even more um,
1: yeah. morally problematic. Uh,
3: but it was interesting yeah. that the, that the Italian Parliament should feel the need to, uh, to to write to the House of Lords and tell them tell them they, they should really stop this.
1: And that's the Catholic Church. Presumably. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I'm conclusions But yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I mean the whole kind of religious attitudes to animals are I think important. I mean there has been a tendency to say that religion doesn't really matter that, that you know that people will do what's in their economic interest. They'll breed meals if they jolly well need them. But I'm not sure that's I'm not sure that's true. I think actually that people's religious attitudes do impact on the way they actually treat animals and what they actually do with them. Um, you can't just dismiss it out of hand. On the other hand, you can't go from the what's said in normative high religion to what people actually do in peasant villages, because clearly there's a huge gap between, between those two spheres. Going from a
2: historical perspective to a future, um, what? If thinking in, say, 20 years' time in Africa, um, what, what, what are we going to see in, in terms of the use of equids uh, in, in the different environments, you know, and how can we plan towards it? I mean, as I said, with motorcycles or bicycles, there'll be some reduction. With increasing roads, there'll be some reduction. There will be use towards the, the fringes of the road network. Um, there may be increasing use for tourist and ceremonial functions, you know, weddings and mm-hmm. things like this as well. That could be important.
1: Well, I think you've got to be a little bit careful about the introduction of new modes of communication because the railway, uh, we know, does not decrease the use of horses it increases it. Because although the railway takes out the long-distance transport, it creates a much bigger demand for for short-distance and medium-distance transport. So it depends exactly how the road network develops and also, of course, what matters the price of oil. I mean, if the price of oil goes through the roof again, um, the incentives to using non oil based <laughs> modes of everything you know, will, will increase enormously in too. On the other hand, if the oil price goes on going where it's going at the moment, um, you know, so there's all huge numbers of imponderables. But I think what we are moving towards is clearly a situation around the world where equids are becoming more and more recreational. Um, certainly in the West, I mean, um, you know, horse racing and uh, you know, polo and all these sorts of things are. Of kind of where these things uh, remain, and there there's little room for mules and donkeys. I mean, that uh, the recreational use is very much biased towards horses. So, but whether that's going to be the way it's going to happen in Africa, I've got
4: You touched on on women and use of donkeys. The women uh, are felt able to use donkeys, and the men say that's okay. They they can't touch flying oxen, but can use them. And so there has been a huge change and um, economic development, you might say, in the life of women in Africa, because um, they are the ones who carry the water and fatherhood almost universally. And they can now um, use a donkey, or they can send their six-year-old child to take the donkey to get the water, because mm-hmm. um, donkeys are easily handled. So um, I think that comes directly on your under mm-hmm. your heading mm-hmm. of, of one particular sector. Of the older population.
1: Of course, what's interesting is if women want to do things that men do, and no longer do things that women do, because that might also affect things, you know, uh, you know kind of gender, giving up the Joneses. So it was bound to be the odd one. And when I was interviewing in Ethiopia.
4: I asked to find a woman who plowed, and they didn't find me one. (laughs) Feistiel, the woman who said, Yeah, I'm going to tell you all about that. I do plowing, and the men stare at me, and I say, I don't care. But you you can't build a big theory on on my Feistiel woman.
1: And if anything, I think one thing a historian would say is that divisions between what men and women do are one of the most long lasting, difficult to shift divisions in human history. These are very stable and tend to be very stable in long-term solutions. I mean, it's true things are changing, but uh, never underestimate the resistance to
3: that kind of change.
2: Uh, And also I think the the, the, um, the regulations and the the perceptions of society. I had a a similar interview the other way around. A woman who was ploughing who denied she was uh, (laughs) ploughing because she thought that I would think that she was backward ploughing with oxen. You know, but, but she had been. I could see she was, but she wouldn't admit it to me because I was, you know, I, I was a prestigious person, and she didn't want to be. And I think that, uh, you know, the, the whole perception, the lack of mo- mo- modernity, is a huge problem with the use. Um, which is why it's increasingly the donkeys associated with poverty etc which again people don't want to be associated with that whereas motorbikes are associated with prestige etc and also the the governments are like this and so the governments are not promoting or supporting uh, and therefore there will be legislation to prevent so for example in Addis you know with with obviously it's modernizing but they could have tried to have some special routes yeah. For donkeys to come in, and they said no, donkeys should not be allowed to come in. But they could have actually said, well, have these kind of equipment reboots allowing uh, mm. the donkeys to come in. No, you know. So it's it's it's, oh, it's okay. a modernisation thing like this, which is I think it's it's very difficult to get a, a positive view, except on the kind of ecological fringes of society where people think, are oh, this is sustainable. So you have to ride a donkey when you go to
1: Africa. <laughs> Jump onto donkey and ride around. I
7: don't know, uh, um, sort of in response to that, and I, I was wondering where, if, if you knew about this, the mass use of donkeys on Lamu Island, um, how mm. does that fit in with that, because I see the donkeys are a real massive sign of prestige there, um, and, the, and, the, and and the well, when I was there, going back eight years I suppose, maybe it's changed, but there wasn't any motorised vehicles there, and donkeys were seen, everyone, yeah donkeys were what, was where it was at, um, so is this, a, a non, a or is this no. a model to follow? The, 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 these are,
2: are spe- special things. In the Seychelles, it costs you twice as much to travel to your hotel in an ox cart as a taxi, yeah. you know, <laughs> because it's it's prestigious, yeah. And, and so, so you know, a, and there are the island of Edfroy in Greece, etc., where you you've got all the use of these uh, a- animals, and many people like it, and many people don't like it. You know, some of people would like to have their own cars, etc. No, but if you can make it prestigious, if you can make it so people prepared to pay a premium, particularly in Lama or something like this, to get the, the tourists to, to use it. Yeah, exactly. And and in some of the Mediterranean islands, you know, the, 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 the tourists will go for. That's one of the reasons why I'm saying it. In, in one of the ways is that tourism tends to be a prestigious market, and therefore it's likely to carry on in the future. And so I think we can see, as in quite a lot of Mediterranean countries, the, the, the use of animals, horses, um, and donkeys is, is, is increasingly for c- you know ceremonial and tourist purposes. And we want to resurrect donkey
1: races. Somewhere like Malta used to have a real tradition of donkey racing. So I was trying to persuade them that, they, in the interest of tourism, <laughs> they should resurrect <laughs> donkey races.
4: And they have them in London. Do they? Yeah. Oh,
3: right. yeah. um, Does anyone know what's happening in Bangu at the moment? I mean, presume the tourism industry is completely decimated
5: at the moment. Yeah. Don't you?
2: I, I haven't been there, but, but yeah, this not many tourists would like border. to go there for obvious reasons, yeah. Yeah, so mm. security,
3: it's, it's
1: uh, very dangerous, it's mm. very sad. Well, so I, I'm, as a historian, of course, I always say that I don't gaze in my crystal ball and don't look to the future, just keep my gaze firmly fixed on the past. Safe <laughs> so for that way. Yeah, <laughs> exactly.
0: Let's let's bring this formally to to a close and thank thank William very very much again. That was nice. <laughs>